This is episode 322, dated Friday, August 25th, 2023. You are listening to the In Perspective weekly podcast with Bob Branco and Peter Outchul. Hi, everyone, and welcome to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco. This is episode 322, dated Friday, August 25th, 2023. With us today, of course, we have Peter Alchel. Peter, how are you? Welcome, everybody, from Columbia, Missouri, where it's 102 degrees and miserable, but it's supposed to cool off tomorrow and Sunday. Okay. Before we continue with our very special guest, let me offer some thank yous and some shout-outs. We start out with Raymond Gay, our executive producer and editor. Thank you for what you do. Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place Chatline, thank you for posting our shows. Our media sources, thank you for airing us when you do. It helps us a lot. And finally, Jacqueline Sylvia from JS Web Solutions, who archives our shows on my website, which is www.brancoevents.com. Go there, click on In Perspective Podcasts, and you will see all of our archived programs from latest to earliest. Merci, Jackie. I have four shout-outs today to four dedicated listeners, Vinny Samarco, Joe McKeezy, Becky Frankieberger, and Sally Rosenthal. Thank you very much for your input and your support. We appreciate it. And I also want to take this opportunity to thank Chanel and Natalie for being our hosts for today's program and, of course, for Anthony for streaming on ACB Media 5. Today we have as our guest Tom Sullivan. Tom has done so much that I can't keep up with him. I wish I had his energy. Maybe we can compare notes at some point. I don't know. Tom is an author, actor, musician, motivational speaker. Tom, I know I left some things out, so please fill me in. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> no. let, 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 let's add entrepreneur, uh, 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 a parent, uh, husband, and I'm sure I forgot. Oh, a philanthropist, I think, is something else. And I a I, little bit, Peter. You know, I I'll, I I have to say that I'm really the luckiest fellow that I know about. Uh, what's the Jimmy Stewart thing? I've I've had a wonderful life, and it has been. Uh, but I was truly a lucky person, thanks to early life, because I had talent to use, and in a sense, a place to put it. Uh, whether that was in you know sports or music or uh, or authorship, uh, I, I owe a lot to that early education, Perkins, and then Providence College and Harvard, because I had a chance to to put all the talents in place and use them well, and, and I think that's a big deal. And I also think that I was so lucky because um, just a story maybe that sums it up and it frames it for all of us. So. Perkins was a place um, that educationally was wonderful, but it did, at, back then, take away the outside world in a lot of ways. And I lived in West Roxbury in Boston. My parents had built a fence around the backyard because the theory was, you know, keep Tom from wandering around the neighborhood. And down the street from the house, there was a baseball field. Uh, and I used to hear the sound of the kids playing ball and like every one of us, I wanted to be in the game. And I, I, I used to pick up rocks from the ground. My dad had given me a Louisville Slugger baseball bat. 
and I would bring my transistor radio outside and put it on on the steps, put the Red Sox on, and as they played, I would throw rocks up in the air and try to hit them out of the yard. And one day, when Ted Williams hit one over the Green Monster in left field in Fenway, I happened to hit the rock. And I was so excited, I ran around the yard following the fence line and slid into what I thought was home plate. But I wasn't alone. There was a kid that was coming from the Little League game, and he was coming by the yard. And he got to the fence, and he said, Hey, kid, what are you doing? I said, I'm playing ball. He said, "Uh, Are you blind? I said, Yeah, because I was hoping to make a friend. And he said, Well, that's a stupid game, and you're a stupid kid. And then he started the chant that a lot of us heard when we were kids. Blindy, 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 he chanted. And I picked up rocks from the ground, and every time he'd chant, I'd throw a rock. And eventually he got tired of the game, and he went away. And I sat on a swing in the corner of the yard and cried my eyes out and thought, somehow there has to be a better life. Well, it happened. Two little boys moved into a house right next door. And I used to hear them in their yard. But between me and them, there was a high fence, a seven-foot-high fence. And I remember it was May 19. 19- Jesus, 1955, I was eight, and I grabbed the fence and pulled myself up hand over hand, and I got to the top, and I leaped into space and crashed on the ground, and these two little boys came running up, and the one little boy who's been my best friend now for 65 years, a kid named Bill Hannon, Billy looked down, and he said, wow, he said, that was a gnarly fall, he said, "Uh, I'm Bill Hannon, I said, I'm Tom Sullivan, and I'm blind, and he went, wow. And then, everybody, he said the three most important words I ever heard, and they're the words that we all wanted. He said, want to play. And that's what happened. He opened up my world. And so whenever I think of all of us, I think about, was there a place, a moment, a time, a a circumstance where somebody opened the world for everybody on this call or Zoom and everybody out there who might be listening? Tom, all, I'm sorry. Keep going. I'm yeah, sorry. We all, we all needed that. We all needed that door to open, didn't we? Tom, I want to ask you a question about that because you write about that in your As I See It book. And you yeah. make a connection between those two stories about the bully and the guy who became your best friend for life. Talk about yeah. that connection that, that, that you wrote about. Well, they connected because they were both really important. Uh, the bully was important because he framed the fact that we all compete to overcome labels, right? And because of him, I stopped thinking of people as labeled. I started to project the the whole idea that the essence for all of us is to break the stereotypes, break the labels. So in a sense, the bully was important, and he was also, Peter, important because uh, I don't think we learn through winning. I've thought about this a lot Mm -hmm. at my age. Because I've had a lot of wins, you know, in terms of movies and TV series and books and all those things. But I think the only time I ever really grew was against the backdrop of adversity. Yeah. Now, in the same sense, you know, Billy Hannon taught me to play. He gave me the positives. In fact, quick story, Peter. Um, I just recently went back to Boston and I served as the um, 
the the uh, marriage official for Billy's daughter. Billy's daughter got married, and I married them. You know, you can get a one day thing from a judge, and you can marry them. So I performed the ceremony, and afterwards, I have a weakness. Uh, Red breast Irish whiskey. I admit that I love the stuff. And Billy had a bottle on the bar just for me and Billy. So we got enjoying it. And uh, he said to me, because the father of the bride always gets, you know, sort of weepy. He said, uh, listen, he said, uh, I got to tell you something. I said, okay, what? He said, I'm your best friend, right? I said, yeah. And he said, I'm the only person when you were a little boy who loved you, right? I said, I guess maybe. He said, uh, I have to tell you something. He said, I taught you to play ball and everything. And I said, yes, Billy, what do you want? He said, <laughs> remember when we went fishing? I said, yeah. I said, Billy, it was a great day. We went to the town pier and we dropped the fishing lines down and I caught my first flounder. And I said, we brought it up and you took it off the hook and I put it in my hands and I learned what a fish was. And I said, do you remember I caught nine more? And he said, no, you didn't. I said, what the hell are you talking about? No, I didn't. He said, I just put it back on the hook nine times. <laughs> the true test of a good friend. Yeah, the so, true so, test of a good friend. So, so Tom, uh, there's another connection that, you, that I think you made in the book that I thought was really interesting. You spoke about you know crying your eyes out in the swing, and then you talked about how angry you became. And you spoke about sort of righteous anger. Uh, that's my word. Oh, now. the two kinds of anger, kinds yeah. Of anger, which I thought was really interesting. Talk about that. What prompted you to get over that fence? I mean, that's a major thing for a 10-year-old or a 9-year-old kid to do, a 10-foot fence. Well, huh? yeah. And uh, Listen, it, what's the thing? And we all go through this in our own lives. Whatever our professions are, whatever we're doing, there comes a point of desperation, doesn't there? Where you yeah. just have to say, you have to risk it all. And the, the two kinds of anger are instructive anger, which fo- prompts you to learn or grow or gain you know, more levels of, of, of education and skill set. That's instructive. Destructive anger is frankly one of the things that has always frightened me about our community, not not just the blind community, but the whole question of disability and how we feel about it. Because when you have destructive anger, there is no growth. There just isn't, because you're not putting anywhere. Remember, I don't know if you ever went through this, but when you were a kid, I, I, I had a uh, 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 couple of kids that we went to Perkins with back then. One of the kids' name was Jerry names was Jerry, and, and when Jerry would get mad, he would want to fight, but he was so mad he couldn't. His whole body would just stiffen, and he couldn't. It was all so, bottled up, I guess. I think so, Bob. So, you know, destructive anger gets us nowhere. And so the question, I think, becomes how do you, how do you make that anger move you in a good direction? You know, uh, in your case, you well, did. Uh, you I, over that I, I think you have to. Peter, I think you have to find out at some point you have to research the question. Well, let me, let me go to this. If you have a level of, of anger, uh, I think every one of us has the capacity to direct it. Um, and we direct it by finding something we're, uh, we're good at or that we can offer in terms of value to others. It's like and channeling, I, I, channeling your emotions. I think so, Bob. I think that that's. I think there's a special element of of, of channel and, and of focus, and I, I I feel very, very, very blessed 
who have been able to do that. You know, now I've had I've had incredible help along the way. Uh, you know, Billy was a huge help. Uh, my parents divorced, so and it was a bad marriage. So I can't say that there was a lot there. But I've been married to Patty now for fifty three years, and um, and that was an amazing uh, find for me. Patty, in every sense, has walked step for step in this life. It, uh, I don't know if this is important to anybody, but Patty and I have a wonderful story about how we were brought together. Um, I had taken a job playing piano on Cape Cod uh, during my junior and senior year at Harvard because I needed money to stay in school. And in a little bar I played in one night, Betty White, the actress, the wondrous Betty White, and her husband, Alan Ludden, came in. They were doing a summer stock play. And... Uh, uh, I got to know them really well then. Um, they Sometimes I'd accompany them and they'd sing and, and uh, they liked stuff I did. Uh, and one night, Betty White said to me, you know, she said, there's a girl that comes in here all by herself every night. And if you could see her eyes look at you, you would never date anybody else. And she grabbed my arm and dragged me across the room. She said to the girl, what's your name? And the girl stammered, I'm Patty. Stefan. Betty White said, this is Tom Sullivan, sit down. And she pushed me into a chair. And so Betty White's the reason Patty and I got married. And, and uh, Betty was a huge force in my life. We, When I wanted to enter show business, it was Betty White who really, and Alan at Ludden, who opened doors for me. They were the ones who introduced me to Johnny Carson and, and uh, all the talk show people at the time, Merv Griffin and, John, and Dinah Shore and and uh, Alan arranged for me to get my first record contract, so I owe them so much. And for those who might be interested, you know, as people know, we lost Betty about a little year and a half ago. Short of her one hundredth birthday. Yeah, that's two days. Uh, well, two weeks before the birthday, Bob. But Patty has written a, a marvelous. It's amazing, a marvelous book. I thought I was going to be the only author in this family, but Patty's written a book called Betty White's Pearls of Wisdom, Betty White's Pearls of Wisdom, and it's on Audible, and it is just a marvelous piece of work. I, I, now I answer the phone here in the house as Patty's uh, secretary. So, <laughs> so, so Tom, I, I, you know, I, uh, I read your first book, um, uh, and Patty really had an influence in your life, and one of the stories I found really interesting, and I hope you will share it, is the time that Patty uh, says to you, uh, "Hey, you have an invitation to speak at uh, uh, an, an organization that." that uh, uh, oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Peter, exactly. Yeah, it I was great. It, it, it is bra- Peter, you Peter, you really do your homework. Uh, this was <laughs> this is the Braille Institute out here yeah. in California. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I had just done my first television. It was, in fact, it was the, just after I'd done the first Johnny Carson show, uh, and so I had been asked to speak, and I had no idea what the Braille Institute was, and I thought I was the hottest young guy in the business, you know. And when you're young and you're arrogant, and I I was, uh, <laughs> you just think I'll just walk in here and give this speech, and so I showed up and I got up in front of this group, and I gave this rah-rah speech about how there were no limits to what we could achieve, and there was unlimited opportunity if you just reach out and take it, and 
you could um, turn every disadvantage into advantage if you could just face the turning points in your life. And I went through this whole thing, and I said, and you can find the jobs you want and have the freedom you want. <laughs> and I said, are there any questions? And this guy stood up and said, well, what do you do if you're 93? It turns out they were all over 85. Oh. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, it was a wonderful moment. <laughs> but but that's not the story I'm referring to. So my under, my oh. understanding is that Patty says to you, have this opportunity to speak, and you resisted it in a major way. Uh, am I am I remembering the story correctly? And your first no, book? you're not. I I I didn't think I Peter. I, I thank you for being smarter than I am. Uh, I I have to say I don't. I think when I first started to give speeches, I don't know that I had anything to say. Mm-hmm. You know, I I was. I was too busy with my own windmills, mm-hmm. you know, beating the windmills. And, and, uh, I don't, I don't think, I also don't know that I had come to understand, or do I know it now, that the only true joy in life is in the engagement with others. Yeah. You know, like, like what we're doing today, everybody, this is really important stuff. And I don't mean what I'm saying, I mean the collective concept of coming together to, to be uh, to share in order to grow. Uh, you know, I'm 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 so fortunate because even at age, God, seventy six, I've got a um, another one of my books, Adventures in Darkness, just got bought by Paramount, and it's going to be a a big movie. And I'm in the middle of, I think, the best novel I've ever written. Uh, that I've had more fun with than any book I've ever written. I've written 15, 15 of them, but this is, uh, it's, I guess where I'm going is to, get, to wake up every morning and feel healthy enough to get out and have a jog or whatever and, and, and you know, take a swim and come back in and, and live your life putting words on paper that you hope people will appreciate. Boy, it, it doesn't get any better than that. So and then sitting out on the patio with Patty at five o'clock and having a cocktail. Hey, life. So, so Tom, I I, I want to come back to this because uh, for me, um, I'm uh, you and I in some ways are quite similar. I was quite an arrogant idiot when I was in my twenties as well. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad and, to hear it, Peter. Yeah, I'm glad uh, to hear it. No, but but the thing I found interesting about that story, and I hate to sort of come back to it, but uh, Patty says you have this opportunity to speak at the Braille Institute, and you resisted it in a major way, and you went for a walk on the beach. Uh, and you, um, uh, you, you sort of came back with a speech that things you might say. And then you came back and said, uh, you came back uh, on the, uh, uh, on the beach and you decided you weren't going to do it. And you, um, and if I have the story right, if I, you know, please tell me if I have it wrong. You, you, um, you're, you're heading home. You didn't know Patty was there and, uh, your guide dog saved you from being hit by a car. Oh, yeah. And that was- Heidi, actually, as I remember, because my first dog is yes. also Heidi, uh, yes. as well. And, and, um, my sense is that was a real turning point for you that you sort of understood that, you know, if Heidi could save your life, you might be able to support other people who you, Peter, you're really sharp. And you're really sharp. And this comes, can I express a concept that I think is helpful for all of us? And it came out of that story. God, Peter, I've written so many books. It's, I didn't even remember the story. Thank you for this. Um, but it, it, it outlines a concept that is so basic to us. And this is the idea of um, dependence 
in, independence and interdependence. And, and it, it, it frames, in my case, right from the beginning of my life. My, when, um, I didn't know this, obviously, at the time. But when my parents brought me to the ophthalmologist after my mother figured out I might be blind, he said to my father, well, Mr. and Mrs. Sullivan, your child's blind, institutionalize him. Because in 1947, that was the thinking. Just like and that. Just like that, Bob. And, and so the framing was, I was going to be dependent, right? And everything that Peter's talking about, and, and some of your audience here knows about in, in some of my books or whatever, and, or television, that was Tom's screaming at the world, let me be independent, right? We all want it. Let me be independent. But what the guide dog taught, and in that life-saving moment, was, hey, wait a minute, pal. We're interdependent. And when you come to terms with that, when you can say, yeah, that's right, I'm interdependent, now you've got a chance at a real life because you're acknowledging the significance of others, don't you think? Yeah. And, and I, you, I, don't you think that's right? I, I think so. And, and and I also think that that's a hard lesson to learn. And I also think that this whole uh, independence dependence thing is on a continuum, right? So there are times when you when you can be independent and you should be. And then there are times when you should be dependent. And most of the time we're sort of in the middle. Uh, the Peter, way again, you're right on the money. And Bob, it, it, it's but and it's about whether or not you have two things. You have to have the willingness to acknowledge the significance of others. And you have to have the willingness to, to put your ego aside and recognize that and, and make it work for you. Listen, well, well, it's like today. I was talking today about going out and playing golf when we finished this. And the guy that will be out there with me lining my shots up, the coach, I never, I never, in blind golf, you know, you never use the word caddy because that's not what these wonderful men are or women. They're coaches. He, he'll live every shot with me today. And it, 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 every time I hit a good shot, I'm, I'm forced to recognize how significant this interdependence is. If I'm going to enjoy that game, he's got to be part of it. So we all learn it either in our marriages or in our relationships or that's, that's when you've really become a mensch, a mature human being capable of really living an exciting and wonderful life. Well, Tom, this ties into Perkins. I just want to bring this up for a second. You attended yep. Perkins when it was fully regarded as a shelter. Just remember the director and you'll know what I'm talking about. So for those <laughs> of you, Ed- <laughs> so for those of us who wanted to be independent and still do, obviously, how did you manage to rise above all that you had to face? And I faced it to a point myself because I was at Perkins. Bob, from you, you've, hit, you've hit a great, you've hit a great point. You, you really have. <laughs> I certainly feel different about Perkins today than I did back then, and I'm sure you do too. Uh, back then, I, I, boy, I hated it. I, I, um, I was sent home 11 times in the course of my Perkins life. <laughs> For being mischievous? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, did some, I, I did some horrible, uh, well, I guess not really. My father owned Irish pubs, so one time I brought a whole bunch of... Uh, uh, Scotch, <laughs> uh, back on a Sunday night and got half the kids loaded, uh, 
that was bad. <laughs> and then another time, uh, do you remember, Bob, that we had a museum that ran down the middle of the building? Absolutely. Of, of, okay. Right in the middle of the Howell building. Right. And one of the ex- <laughs> expositions they had was, and I don't know if you ever got to touch it. I Maybe it was gone by the time you, but they had a, a suit of armor. Oh, yeah. This and, is- and we, Ernie Anderson and I, my wonderful friend, we, we, God, I feel awful when I say this. We got this kid who was a little bit of a slow learner. <laughs> oh, God, Tom. And we got him downstairs uh, in the locker room, and we broke into the cabinet and, and stole the armor. And somehow we got him into some of it. And then we held him until the chapel line went in, and then we released him, and he wanted to go to chapel, and he walked in and had the armor on, and he fell <laughs> with the armor hitting the uh, tile floor of the chapel. <laughs> I was sent home for that. But, but then, Tom, what's interesting to you about that story, and I remember that story, uh, is that your father sort of yelled at you in the hearing of the administrators, and then sort of laughed about it. Is that is that? Is yeah, that took right? me to Fe- he took me to Fenway Park to see a Red Sox game. <laughs> Oh, I'm not as a reward or a punishment. Yeah, yeah exactly. I don't know which it was. Yeah, that's right, Bob. I'll tell you what, fellas. That uh, the the whole. I think the worst thing that I was part of, and yet it was for me the most joyous. Bob, when you were there, did 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 they still ring the uh, tower bells by hand at Christmas? Yes. Okay. Yes, they did. They were trained. I look. Yeah, I loved it. We'd have four guys, and each guy would have two bells, you know, and you'd ring joy to the world or whatever. And uh, I had done that, like all of us did. And at that time, the Christmas concerts were really special. And, you know, there was nothing like the Perkins Chorus. I mean, when you think, at least in my period, we had about 120 kids in the chorus, the upper school chorus. And of those 120, at least 50 had perfect pitch, and at least thirty of us went on and made a living in music. I mean, it, it was a, it was. And when I think of the music that we did, I mean, difficult stuff, Fortuna Tongo and the Poulenc masses and Mozart masses and the Curies, really difficult music. Well, in this particular concert, we were being broadcast to Radio Free <laughs> Europe, and. Uh, Ernie Anderson, again, who was the smartest kid in our class, he decided that we should disrupt the Radio Free Europe uh, broadcast. And I said, well, what, what do you want to do? And he said, well, when, we, when the chorus is singing, I'll pretend to get really sick, and he, he, you'll have to tell Mr. Boggess that he has to get us out of there. So we were in the back row, and Ernie started to make believe he was <laughs> throwing up. And Mr. Bogus said, well, get him out, Tom, get him out. And so we went up in the tower, and as the Hellier chorus was being done, we rang. Oh, Jesus. It On was the so chimes? Bad. Yeah, it was bad. So we went home for that. Yeah, I'm but, sure you did. <laughs> yes, we did. But I, but I want to go back to this, Bob, because I really do want to be fair about it. I, you and I had teachers there that changed our lives. Yes, we um, did. For, 
for me, for me, and I'm starting to cry, uh, sorry, um, Hank Santos, who was the most mar- marvelous, marvelous pianist and teacher. You know, he won all kinds of piano competitions. He was a great talent himself, and he also played excellent jazz. He had been in the Air Force Band, you know, the military Air Force jazz band. And so when I was there, he knew I wanted to, I was, I wanted to sing, and I didn't want to play Bach and Chopin. And so he would, in my lessons, he would accompany me, and we'd do Ella Fitzgerald stuff and Billie Holiday stuff. Hank just died in the last few days, and I just found out about it this morning. He actually also, when I started to play clubs, nightclubs, Hank came out and accompanied me in, in three or four of these. He was just an incredible... And he introduced me to the whole civil rights movement. You know, he had been, Hank had been Martin Luther King's roommate at Boston University. Uh, what an amazing, amazing man. And then the reason I've been so lucky to write movies and television and books, because of one guy, one guy, Tony Ackerman. He was the single most important force in my life. Uh, he introduced us all to Shakespeare and to great literature. And oh, we did a lot of plays with him: Hamlet, oh, Julius, yeah. Julius Caesar, Romeo, yeah. Juliet. Oh, you're right about that, Tom. I had Mr. Uh, Ackerman Bob, for three years. I'm glad. I'm glad you loved him, Bob, because he was he was uh, he was a true Tony was a truly unique, and he introduced us uh, on, in private time. He introduced me to old radio and and that I loved and. And script writing because we would he and I would listen to all the mysteries on Sundays, and then he'd ask me about how I thought the writers put the plots together. In fact, the first story I ever got published, Tony edited. It was called. <laughs> I, I was a freshman in, at Perkins, and I wrote a story called Three Seconds to Death." <laughs> it was the story of a kid falling off a cliff and all the thoughts that he had as he died or as he fell, and I don't even know why in God's name a kid from West Roxbury would be writing about falling off a cliff, but I did. And it got published, and that was the first published work that I ever had. I, 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 I just owed Tony the world. Don't forget Drama Club. He directed that, That's too. right. That's right. You know what? I was a crappy actor then, and I'm a crappy actor now. <laughs> That's not what I hear. <laughs> well, I... You know what, Bob? Uh, the only reason I got jobs out here as an actor over all these years was because I wrote the scripts, and I'd write myself in, and if they wanted to buy the script, they had to take me, too. You know, oh. speaking of Hank Santos, uh, one of his colleagues also passed away this summer, Adele Tritko. Oh, did Miss Tritko? Oh. Yes, July 18th. Oh, thank you for telling me. From yeah, what I another understand. One of the, we had such wonderful... You know, all of those musical people, Hank and, and Mr. Bogus and Adele and Mr. Milk, uh, Leonard Milk, and and uh, the, the, the doyon of all of it, Miss Thayer, Eleanor Thayer, who had the little kids. Yes, you know? I had the pleasure of having Miss Thayer for the last two years of her career. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was, well... Again, think about it when you when you put it in those perspectives, Bob. That, that's why it's so important, don't you think, for us to have the balance? Because I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> there wouldn't have been a Tom Sullivan without all those people. 
And on that note, I think we should open it up to the audience, Bob. Before we do, I just want to add a little humor. I can't resist this, Tom. I want to be lighthearted. Yes, sir. Uh, briefly about when Betty White introduced you to Patty. If Alan Ludden was with her, you'd have to get a password. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, the password was love. The password, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> I do. The password was love. And, and anyway, you know, and, go ahead, Tom. I guess. I, well, I was. I was going to say. Um, I, I'm delighted that we're going to be able to open up the questions. Uh, and and I guess we've got a monitor to read the hands up, right? We yes, do we do. Okay. So you're listening to In Perspective. I'm Bob Branco, and my co-host is Peter Alcho. We have Tom Sullivan with us this afternoon. I want to turn now to either Natalie or Chanel to find out if anybody has their hands raised. Yes, we have several. We have eight of them, actually. Whoa. All right. Well, let's okay, let's as best, as best we can. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, um, Lynn, you are up first, followed by Deanna. Lynn. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Dr. Lynn Corral. But one of the things that I think I saw a movie about you and, uh, Mr. Sullivan, and I'm about your age. I'm 71 myself and I grew up in New York, not Boston, but I had a, I have a friend who moved to Boston, uh, Dr. Karen Navy. So, um, I think that, um, you know, what I think about in the independence and interdependence, and this is what sparked my, my call, my, my comment is I did, uh, workshops on that, and I think interdependence is very important. I kind of agree that you can take a middle ground because my mother, who's dead, um, basically told me you have to be independent. I mean, she didn't want to be have anybody depend on her, um, you know, me depend on her. So, and I went to residential. Not, I didn't go to a res- residential school. I went to um, schools with resource rooms and stuff like that all through school. So, you know, maybe I should have, and they were going to send me to a school for the blind when I was in seventh grade, but I thought I was doing well enough to stay in the public schools of New York City. So that's what I wanted to say. Lynn, I'm glad you did. Bob and I both have feelings about this, I'm sure. I was a kid, and Bob, you were too. We probably were fellows that should have transferred. If, If the system was working the way it should have, we would have been people that would have transferred out in the seventh grade maybe. You know, and, and a lot of had, my friends did. Yeah, I, 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 I don't regret at all because I wouldn't have had Tony Ackerman and Hank. But in the same sense, I, I was like you, Bob. I was reaching so and Peter so hard for the outside world that I, I would have been somebody that would have uh, would have thrived. On the other hand, when I think of all the guys, Bob that, and ladies that we went to school with, who have gone on and had wonderful music careers. Uh, geez, we were surrounded by great music. And obviously, in my case, that paid off, you know. Uh, but Lynn, I'm glad to, to get your note about this. And, and, uh, uh, it, since I heard doctor in front of that, it seems to me you must have done very well. Congratulations. Who's well, the next hand, Natalie? <laughs> oh, yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. Deanna. Thank yes. you, Lynn. Deanna, go right ahead. Hi. Okay. So. I was diagnosed at four months with congenital glaucoma, and the doctors told my little mother, who was 17, this child is going to be totally blind by age 10. Being precocious, I managed it at eight and a half. But the thing my mother did was, I come from a Native American background, and she had a horror of residential schools because of the way Native American children were abused. 
so she heard that they had um programs for public schools in California. So when I was 10 and um I was going to be maxing out where I was, it was a, a strange little elementary school that took all the disabled children in the county and dumped them in what I called the zoo school. And it was quite entertaining because being a little wild child, I was very uh, athletic and, and lively and all over the place and didn't stop when I became totally blind. So I was the only one that got off my short bus that was pretty mobile. And there was a girl in a wheelchair. So I pushed her and I would yell as I went down the corridors, look out, here we come. And I'd run down <laughs> the deaf kids. <laughs> because they wouldn't hear me making noise. So um my mom packed her three young children into a res car with the, do- the wire- doors wired on and headed off for California when I was 10 so I could go to public school. And, you know, I think that it doesn't matter where your support comes from, but you need to grow up believing in yourself and as a firstborn child, firstborn daughter, I was my mama's second pair of hands. So I remember learning to wash dishes when I was five, standing on a chair, because, you know, she needed those little hands to be helping her do things. So I never grew up feeling that I was a poor little blind girl. And it really surprised me that other people's reaction to me was, oh, isn't she so sweet? She's such a cute little blind girl. And I think, huh, I wonder who they're talking about because I'm not, I'm little, but I'm tough and I'm strong and I'm smart. And my mother says that I can't wait tables and pump gas, so I'm going to have to use my brain and I've got a good one. So what's their problem? <laughs> and I think Diana, that... That, that you've, is, raised, you've, you've yeah. raised a spectacular point, and, and maybe maybe the group. Uh, I know we've got other hands, but I'd like to just raise this with with Diana. Um, we all face the question of how we see ourselves, right? We all do, and I, I'm going to just say this, and I'd like to get anybody's opinion, Bob, if we could, and Peter, Diana, uh, when I'm not here anymore. You know, when the when they take the shovel and roll the dirt over my <laughs> grave. Here's what I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say, here lies Tom, and he was a husband, father, author, actor, athlete, humanitarian, who, by the way, happened to be blind. If we can slide the... I'm going to say this, and, I, and I, I've never said this to a group ever in my life. Uh, my entire life, has been about every TV show that any of you may have seen, any book of mine, Mm -hmm. any speech that I might have been lucky enough to give, has been all about trying to change the stereotype. Not not acknowledging it, I mean, not, not throwing it aside, just saying, hey, please, take another look, will you? Take another look. Well, I think also, Tom... The important thing is to own it just like all of your other characteristics and not let it dominate because, okay, I'm totally blind. Big deal. Um, 
I have learned to live with it. It's not a problem to me. If it's a problem to you, then the problem is in your head and I can be gracious about it and, um, tease you a little bit like saying, okay, if you really want to, um, guide me, don't grab me or pull me or push me. Um, let me put my hand on your elbow and that puts you a step ahead of me, just like my guide dog. Right. And, uh, right. so I can tell whether you're stepping up and down and you can stop being neurotic and, and thinking you're going to, to, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I had, I was, I yeah, was so then you do that. Yeah. And then you, and, and then I usually end with, and if you fall down the stairs, I can let go. Well, I was on a book tour with Betty White one time. Uh, we had written a book together called mm-hmm. The Leading Lady. Yes, and it was a wonderful book. We, we, we were in the airport, and Betty, you know, sighted guides, everybody, sighted guides sometimes forget that if you're on their arm, mm-hmm. this is a pretty wide boat that <laughs> yeah. moved along. And Betty walked me into a pole, <laughs> and it cut my head wide open, and the blood is pouring down. And Betty White said, oh, Jesus, don't tell anybody I did this to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> It, uh, hey, uh, we've got. I know we've got time issues, Bob, and more hands, huh? Yes, we yeah. do. Deanna, thank thanks Deanna. for your contribution. All right, so I'm going to go over to Chanel because I believe we have some hands in Clubhouse. We do. We have Abby Taylor. Hi, Abby. Hi, uh, Tom. I'm Abby Taylor. I'm in Sheridan, Wyoming, and I am also a musician, but not on the professional uh, level that you are, although I did consider that, but I practiced music therapy for 15 years and then I became an author and now I just entertain on the side at senior facilities. But my question is this, when you were in the nightclub where the Italian um, owner wanted you to sing O Solo Mio and you didn't know it, did it occur to you, and maybe it didn't because of the stress of the moment, but did it occur to you that the Elvis Presley song is Now or Never? Has the same tune, and you could have just gotten the words. <laughs> I, I wish I'd, I wish I'd thought of that, Abby. Uh, <laughs> no, but that, and I'll tell you what, that that whole, oh boy, I don't know if I should tell these stories. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is a mafia. Club. We it won't tell anybody, club. Tom. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. It was a, it was a mafia club, uh, right. and the guy. So I couldn't sing Osolio, and at the end of the night. Uh, I, I, we had a four-piece group, and we were supposed to get twenty-five hundred bucks for the week, and he didn't pay us. Uh, he gave us three hundred dollars, and uh, we were walked, marched out of the little club with a guy, two guys with guns. So, obviously, you're not going to say anything. You're just going to leave. We had our money, so I called my father, and my father owned nine Irish pubs all over Boston. And he said to me, I'll take care of it with his Irish brogue because he came right from Ireland. So two months went by and I was still at Harvard and the phone rang and he said, I'm sending a car to pick you up. Billy, where am I going? So the car takes me down to Tremont Street, downtown Boston, in an alley behind the Statler Hotel. And there's my father with four of his thugs. And he's got this Italian mafia guy on the ground. And my father gets out of his Cadillac, and he goes to the the trunk, and he opens it, and he takes out a a bottle of Budweiser, and he pops it open, and he starts to drink it, and he's now talking to the Italian guy who's being held on the ground. 
he said, now, Peter, he said, my son Tom was born blind, you know, and he's a blind little boy growing up. And now all he's doing is he's reaching into the trunk and out comes a baseball bat. And he says, and now, you know, my son all his life, he wanted to do one thing play baseball. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give him three strikes at your head. Now, how much money is that you owe him? <laughs> and oh they went into God. his pocket. They went into his pocket and took out the 2000 bucks. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> yeah. Well, show business is show business, folks. So oh, how, does that, how, how does that connect with you learning so me on the fly, you know, uh, during a break? I mean, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm trying well, to figure it was, out. It was, that, was, that just happened to be the club. That we oh, I get it. Okay. 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 Yeah. I get it. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, Abby. I don't even know why I told oh, that. I've never it. told it. It's a great story. Yeah, but it, yeah, I'm not supposed to tell those stories. Anyway, what, I what, like it. <laughs> what, what can I say? Uh, yeah. Thank Abby, you, Abby. Or Chanel, do we have anybody in line next? Um, let me check with Chanel, make sure we don't have any more clubhouse. Not in clubhouse currently. Okay. Thank you. All right, so next we have Teresa. Hello, Teresa. Welcome. Teresa Petri. Okay, I had there to get unmuted. There she is. Hi. Okay, and I'm glad you called on me because I'm about to head home. You don't want to hear the background sounds of a car. <laughs> um, anyhow, I am the lady who said that I heard you speak at Marshall University back in the fall of 1984. Yes, And Teresa. I wanted to... I wanted to point out two things that I remembered you shared. One was about you and a girl kissing outside, and you didn't realize, you know, you were right below the windows of the teacher's oh, yeah. lounge, <laughs> and they were looking out, and they saw you. And yeah, I said, oh, a- how I could relate to that. We had to, <laughs> you know, we as young guys and young girls back in the day, and I was in a school for the blind, too. We had to find ways and places to sneak off to and hope that nobody was watching when we, when nobody yeah. was watching where we were going because that was, that was the key thing. There were always people looking out the windows. We were oh, a desperate group, Teresa. We were a desperate yes, group. Yes, we were. And, um, the other thing I remember you sharing was about, uh, when you went skiing and how your those ski vests they made us wear when we went skiing. Yeah, absolutely. Blind <laughs> skier, and you yeah, know that so yeah. well. Blind skier. Well, the blind skier one was okay, Therese, but it was the one that your guide wore because it said blind instructor, and that was the one that made people nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, I went to um, skiing in um, Canaan Valley, West Virginia. Oh, and, sure. Uh, and they took us. And we had the guides, and we, yes, we had to wear those vests. I will in a minute. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so that was funny, but yeah, sometimes it's it's hard to achieve the independence that uh, some. I feel it's sometimes it's hard achieving the independence that people want you to achieve. Now, my children, um, and I was really, I never heard him say it, but my son told um, our his father one day. He said. I don't see mom as blind. Um, I see her, you know, trying very hard to raise us. And um, his older brother, one year for Mother's Day, I got, you know, I got a nice bouquet of flowers from both of the children, and it said on there, thank you for your 25 years of dedication as a mother, and that makes me cry. 
Well, you couldn't ask for more than that, could you, Therese? Absolutely. No, I mean, you know, I know I wasn't the perfect parent, but I, you know, I I was wife, mother, and, you know, I also worked outside of the home. You know, it's interesting. There was just an, I, uh, there's a magazine out here in California, kind of a major magazine, and they just did a, a story on, on me, like, kind of like we're doing here. And part of the story was they interviewed people who knew me and asked for opinions about, who Tom was, and they got to my son. Now my son is a is a world class surfer. He's a, he, in fact he also makes surfboards. And of the top fifty surfers in the world, thirty of them ride something he made with his hands. He's really a craftsman. He's truly an artist. But the, but he's a California laid back kid. So the magazine uh-huh. author said to him, Sully. How would you describe your dad? And my son said, "Well, dad, dude, dad's a singer and actor and author." Pause. Actually, he just sells that blind crap. <laughs> God, that's all but, you need. Is have you, have but you, have my your older son... son, my older son is trying to. Um, he's trying to dabble into. Um, well, I won't. I shouldn't say dabble, but he's trying to get into uh, fantasy writing. And he asked me once, he said, what are some things blind people can do with their hands? Oh, oh you know, I wrote back and I gave him a whole slew of things. I said, knitting, crocheting, uh, ceramics. And I told him I'd done some ceramics. And I said, we even had a wood shop in our school. Uh, uh-huh. a, lot of time, a lot of guys took it. Sometimes even girls did, too. Uh, listen, I still have potholders that we made at Perkins, Bob. Me too. <laughs> yeah. And remember, they taught no. us to knit. And I can still remember, in the door, wrap the thread around, hold on to it, bring it through, push the needle down, take it off, and pull up on it. <laughs> I'm impressed. What can I say? I, I never, yeah. I never, I never learned that. You know, I, that's what, all right, Peter. Yeah. And, I, so, and I, any more hands? We have, I, I don't want yeah, to miss anybody. We are at 10 till, and I think we had like 11 hands. So. Well, we won't, we won't get to everybody, but we'll do what best we can. I understand. Yeah. All right. Um, Who do we have? Chris Coulter is next. Chris, welcome. Chris. Hello. 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 Yeah, here I am. Um, I have um, a very, very interesting thing to say, and that is that, that when I, I was, I had a, um, my youngest sister of the four of the four sisters that were my, (laughs) were, were with me. Um, but my youngest sister was 11 years older than me and mom kind of helped out with um helped helped me out to learn how to be to, to hold the baby to you know to take care of her as much as mom did well, as years went by and I was, I had the twin vision books. Any of you ever hear about the twin vision books or where they have braille and print on each, uh, on each page and they have pictures and I was able to read the braille that described the pictures. Well, as time went by, my sister told everybody, my youngest sister, who was by then an adult, and she said, I want to anyone who would listen, I 
am privileged to have been taught to read by a blind woman. You know, it's funny. Uh, uh, just very quickly, I taught my sister how to read too, essentially. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's the family story. I, I'm, a, I'm a year and a half older than she is, or actually, uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, you know, I've, you know, she'd learned to read. I would correct her and the, the family, mm-hmm. the family lore. It's not fully true. It's partly a myth is that I taught my sister to read. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm so, Chris, I, that, that, I, yeah. You've hit, you've hit on such a sensitive area because, uh, there's so much that we in the world we live in as blind people can teach sighted community. I mean, just, yeah. just the basic sensory questions of yeah. we live in a wonderful world of four global, uh, tremendous senses, you know, and I, I don't know about the rest of the folks on the call. I don't feel, and I'm sure, well, I'm sure everybody would say this. I don't think any of us feel cheated, do we? No. No, I don't. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, Bob, do you want to get to a couple more hands? Before yeah, we, we have about six more minutes to go, so we'll get to as many as possible. Thank All you, right. Chris. Go ahead. Thank you. Sorry. Um, next, we have area code 518, ending in 517. Albany. This is Mary Beth, and I'll make it quick. So thank Hi. you so much. This has been a wonderful hour. Hi. Um, I'm probably dating myself by this question, but um, back in the day when when I went to school, uh, there were no you know no laws, no PL ninety four one forty two, no eighty eight, none of that stuff. Okay. And so I went to you know I was regular school and just got through and did fine. But I guess my question to you is, um, and I know I've spent a long, uh, t- some time thinking about this. And in some ways, it was easier for me, I think, than for some of the people now that are so surrounded by, you know, laws and things that they have to do and this and that. I don't know. Um, I, I'm not sure, but in, in some ways, I think, I think I had it easier in some ways than blind students do now. That's a Mary Beth. That's a great question. A uh, great point. I, uh, there's there's a lot to be said about this, and and at least I can speak for California. We're in a horrible circumstance because of the weakness in our um, uh, public school system for converting. Uh, for example, what we do at the Blind Children's Center with infants, we keep them up until they're six. And when we put them out in the world, uh, we're really struggling with having enough itinerant teachers and having enough itinerant teacher and parent communication and having, uh, just by the nature of the vastness of the population, it's, it's, uh, mm-hmm. so I think you've really raised a, a, a really significant point. Also, back in our day, as you defined it, uh, the, the lines were pretty clear. If you were, um, an upwardly mobile blind person that had uh, some some talents to offer, you could find your way, matriculate your way into public school. Uh, the lines have been really blurred now, and it's yeah. hard to know who should be in a state school for the blind and who can cross over and when they should cross over. It's hard stuff. But even the people that cross over sometimes get so, it's like even the people that might have in our, we'll do our day for, I'll keep this quick too, might have just sailed through or gone through, okay, now they're, they're treated like the other people that need, you know, like I would have not, I would not have liked to have had an aide 
stay with me all during high school. No thanks. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind. It's like we, I need uh, mother to go to class with you. Well, we have about one minute uh, to go. I just checked. Sorry, so. yeah, sorry, Bob. I was sorry, just going to tell you. <laughs> oh. uh, thank you, Mary Beth. we got time for one quick one. One quick one. Who do we have? All right, Agnes. Agnes, go ahead. Agnes, you are up. Might have to go to the next one. I'm going to suggest, since we're getting toward the end of time, uh, that Tom, I have a sort of a concluding question for you. Um, and that is what advice might you give to yourself? Uh, you know, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years younger than you are now, or even 50 years younger than you are now. Boy, thank you, Peter. It, it, it really is simple. Uh, it, it, it's three parts. First, I believe in life. Any disadvantage, no matter what it is, can be turned into an advantage if you want it enough. Second part of this is don't allow anybody's labeling to dominate who you are. And the third is frame who you are based on who you want to be, not on how you're perceived to be. That's a great philosophy, Tom, and I'm afraid that we have to wrap it up here. Thank you very much for that conclusion, and thank you very much for your time today. It's been very inspirational, and uh, I wish I had your energy, Tom. Maybe when I get to be your age, which I won't divulge. You've already (laughs) did that, but uh, I'll have as much energy as you do today. And, and, you know, you you provided a lot of incentive for a lot of people, and we want to have you back at some point, if that's okay. Anytime. Anytime. Uh, I loved this. Anytime. All right. Sounds good to me, Tom. Thank you again. And... uh, just uh, briefly, next week, we're going to have Dan Spoon from the American Council of the Blind scheduled to be with us. That should be interesting. Thank you, Chanel. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, everybody, for participating with us today with Tom Sullivan on In Perspective. Go safe with God's abundant blessings. Have a great day, everybody. 